this coming week. <clears throat> this has been, as I've said before, it's been a, a very practical study. Uh, we were talking last Sunday at our community group uh, about the sermon, and uh, somebody mentioned that James is, is like the Proverbs of the New Testament, and that's not all that far from the truth. James is kind of New Testament wisdom literature. It's it's got its differences from the, the book of Proverbs. It's not quite as, as pithy uh, as Proverbs is, and yet James' letter certainly doesn't read like a, an epistle of Paul, uh, where he goes through this argumentation and bolsters it. Instead, James has in large measure over these weeks and months that we have been opening this book together, has been giving us these, these uh, wisdom sayings cobbled together with this collective picture, this collective point of this is what following Jesus looks like. This is what genuine and true faith looks like. And we might say, counteracting the, the view that we just do these things out of duty, that this is what life looks like, true life. This is how we were created to live. This is how we are called and invited to live through the grace of the gospel and through the power of his spirit. And so all of those practical things, a life that rejoices in, in God's uncomfortable grace in the midst of trials and, and fights and strives for joy, a life that, that does the word rather than just hearing the word and forgetting what the word says, but actually tries to put it into its life, put it into practice. A life that is lived in, in light of God's good providence, wherever that might lead me tomorrow. And a life that guards itself against gospel-less wealth. And I could go on and on with some of the, the points and some of the truths that we've looked at over these weeks and months. All of this is a life of genuine faith. A faith that is not dead, but a faith that works in response to the grace that it has been shown. Not a, grace, not, not a faith that works to achieve grace, but a faith that responds to the grace that it has been given. And so we pick up where we left off last week. For those of you who are here, just one verse this morning. Uh, stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's Word. James chapter 5, verse 12. James chapter 5, verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. I think you all would agree with me. I don't know that I have to spend a lot of time making this case, but I think you all would agree with me that there is an increasing crisis of truth in our day and age. Even, or maybe I should say especially, at the highest levels of authority. 
You turn on the news and you hear of these officials pleading guilty to lying to Congress or lying to federal investigators to save their own necks or the necks of someone else. Even our president denies saying things, and then they roll a tape of him saying those very things two years earlier. The other day, we were watching the news together as a family, and they had this fascinating segment about the the failed border wall meeting that happened this past week in which both political sides had their version of what went on in that meeting. And the network uh, that we were watching, they strung together their comments, alternating back and forth between the two, and it was almost comical. I, I recorded it on my iPhone so I could use it this morning. The Democrats said, it's cold out here, and the temperature inside wasn't much warmer. The Republicans, the president walked in the room and handed out candy, figuratively speaking. The Democrats, a few minutes later, the president sort of slammed his hand down on the table and just walked out. The Republicans, nobody slammed their hand on a table. Who are we supposed to believe? These are our elected officials, and just so you know that I'm an equal opportunity offender, remember years ago when we had a president who was impeached for perjury that said this infamous quote, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is? This is nothing new. We struggle with the truth. It goes back to the very beginning and it threads its way throughout human history. In our sin, we are masters at the twisting of language for our own ends. It's not isolated to public power. It's not isolated to our day and age. But it is, brothers and sisters, a big deal. It is a big deal. This is the way of the evil one. The one who is called the father of lies. Deceit is at the very heart of his tactics. We saw it in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? And so the issue of the truth is a big deal in terms of its scope, in terms of its importance. This is a passage. This is a verse about truth, about the power of truth rooted in a people, rooted in you, rooted in me, as we live in a world of deceit. One verse, one point to unpack this morning. It's simply this. We are to be a people of truth. We are to be a people of truth. There's a lot more to say, so don't tune me out quite yet. Straight talk, genuine speech, authentic words and conversation, call it what you want. We are called, brothers and sisters, Church of Jesus Christ, to be a people of plain, simple Truth. Truth that flows from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Truth that points and displays the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now James has already hammered home significantly so the tongue, right? He spent a lot of time talking about the tongue, about the fact that our words matter. Our words are not throwaways. Our words wound and they bless. Our wounds start fires and our, our words can put out fires. Our words matter. But the question when we come to verse 12 of chapter 5 is, where exactly does this verse fit in the letter? Yeah, yeah, James has talked about the tongue, and here he's talking about our speech and how we're supposed to talk, but where does this fit into the letter? Or does it even fit? Is James just throwing in another proverb here about the tongue, about our speech? It seems to flow, if you, if you read it, it seems to flow from somewhere, right? How does the verse start off? But above all, brothers, above all, ab- above what, we might ask? Maybe the whole letter? Is this, is this kind of a summary statement of the whole letter? But above all, everything that I've told you before, above all, my brothers, hear this. Well, some have liked to say that that's indeed how this verse fits, that it's so important that truth is a picture, is a outgrowth of genuine faith, that this is kind of the summary statement of it all. I think it's a stretch to say that personally. I think this exhortation actually flows from where we were last week. Certainly we could have tagged it on to last week's sermon. That would have Kept you here twice as long, though. But that's where your English translators, you can see, have, have divided it. I mean, that's a, all those divisions in your Bible, all those headings in your Bible, those are not inspired. Those are simply the, in, uh, the translator's best attempt at grouping together ideas. And, and the English translators of our uh, translations have grouped together this verse with the preceding verses. But that's not just why I think it fits with the verse, the verses that come before. I think it fits with the verses that come before because remember last week we were talking about suffering and about how suffering squeezes us, right? Suffering puts us in a, in a pressure cooker of sorts and it tempts us and it invites us to grumble to grumble to others, to grumble about others, to grumble to God Himself because of our difficult circumstances. And I would say also that suffering, God's people who are suffering here in the first century who James is writing to, as they're being squeezed, it's also causing them this suffering, it's causing them to have loose lips, we might say. Words that are misleading, promises that are spoken in the heat of the moment that that aren't truly fulfilled. And so I think James here is just continuing with some variation his admonition to guard your hearts, guard your tongues against speech patterns which bring the Lord dishonor and bring judgment upon yourself, particularly when you are being squeezed in suffering. We are called to be people of truth. And so just as he said, do not grumble because the judge is coming last week, 
Here he says, do not swear lest condemnation fall upon you. Now, I suspect some of you kids, you hear that word or you hear that phrase, do not swear, and you're thinking of that bad language that you hear, maybe at school, maybe in movies that you've watched, maybe just in the supermarket. Well, that kind of speech certainly doesn't honor the Lord. James, James is not talking about profanity here. James is speaking against swearing that involves a vow. At its heart, that's what swearing is. It's a, it's a promise. Today, this kind of speech sounds like, I, I swear to God, I'll give it back. Some of you have heard variations of that. I swear on my mother's grave that I did that. But here in James 5.12, there's a specific nature to James' teaching. Do not swear, he says, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. And so what exactly is James condemning here? Is James condemning the taking of any kind of vow? Turn with me for just a moment. If you have your Bibles, you can stick a finger here in James 5, but turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Those of you who hear that book and chapter immediately know that we're headed to the Sermon on the Mount. And to Jesus' words, Jesus, who is the half-brother of James, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, Jesus says, again you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all by heaven or either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Okay? So James has been mirroring Jesus' teaching throughout his letter, and here we see it again. James is just picking up what he has heard. Interestingly enough, when James first heard these words on the mount, James didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was, but now James believes. And so he is proclaiming what Jesus said, same thing that Jesus said about oaths. And some have taken these words of James, some have taken these words of Jesus, they've brought them together, and they have interpreted it by saying, we ought not ever take vows as believers. So, some Christians will abstain from not just swearing in common speech, but from ever swearing or making a vow. For instance, if they're being sworn in a court of law, they will refuse such a swearing in. Is that what James is saying? Some have interpreted it that way. I'm going to argue this morning, that's not what James is saying. That's not the point that he's trying to make. And we know this, first of all, because vows in the Old Testament were actually encouraged 
Deuteronomy 10.20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him, and by His name you shall swear. Exodus 22.10, if a man gives his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast and it dies and it's injured and driven away without seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. Not only that, but God Himself makes vows. Deuteronomy 7.8, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your father. Hebrews 6.13, when God made a promise to Abraham, since He had no one greater by whom to swear, He swore by Himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Even Jesus, when He was on earth, when He stood before the council at the very end of His life, Caiaphas said to Him, I adjure you by the living God, basically calling an oath here, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ. Jesus doesn't take that opportunity to speak to Him about the impropriety of that oath. He simply says, you have said so, seemingly binding Himself. The bottom line is that oaths, vows, are at times appropriate, even helpful. And we'll return to that in just a moment, but I felt like that needed to be said. It needed to be fleshed out a little bit as part of this passage. So what's happening in this verse when James says, do not swear? Well, by New Testament times, in James's day, the rabbis, the Jewish teachers of the law, had skewed the taking of oaths, which was introduced way back in the Old Testament, which was permitted and encouraged throughout the Old Testament, into an elaborate system of oaths that were binding and oaths that were not binding. We heard it even more specifically in that passage on the Sermon on the Mount that I read. So if you swore on heaven and earth that you were going to do something, technically that wasn't a binding oath because you didn't swear to God Himself. One rabbi even taught that if you swore by Jerusalem, then you weren't bound by that oath. But if you swore by Jerusalem, and you were facing Jerusalem when you said that oath, then that oath was indeed binding. And this was happening in the New Testament. This was happening in this New Testament times among the Jewish people, and it was sinking into the New Testament church. And it was craziness. Because this kind of thinking and this kind of manipulation of language created imaginary levels of truthfulness. Now we get down to the, where the rubber meets the road. It resulted in the, the trivialization of language, and ultimately, this system of oaths, of non-binding and binding oaths, just became a facade for lying, a cover for speaking things that weren't true. It's like that ancient equivalent of when you were a kid and you said that you were going to do something, but you had your fingers crossed behind your back. Or maybe not your fingers, maybe you had your 
your hands or your, or your legs were crossed behind your back, right? That's the ancient equivalent of what's going on here. And Jesus called the religious leaders out on this very thing years earlier. Flip back with me again to the book of Matthew real quick. Matthew chapter 23 this time. Matthew 23 verse 16. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of his day, Matthew 23, verse 16, and he says, Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, then he is bound by that oath. Okay, you see what's happening? Non-binding and binding oaths all happening. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold of the temple that has made the gold sacred. You say if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, then he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And so James speaks into this cultural context and this cultural phenomenon and this practice that was still happening in his day and he says, Christian, don't do this. Be people of truth. It's your integrity. It's the name of Christ that's at stake. It's the saltiness and the brightness of your witness that's at stake. Not only that, but Jesus the judge is coming and the condemnation is real. So let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. In other words, say what you mean and mean what you say. It's simple. We live our entire lives. We live every second of every day before the face of God. Essentially, under the oath of God. Therefore, all of our words are under oath. We always have our hand on a Bible, if you want to think about it that way. That's what James is saying. Let your yes be yes, your no be no, be people of the truth. And so, and so what does that exactly look like for us today? Well, I want to try to help us apply this with the few minutes we have left. Big picture, it begins with Jesus. Now, he's quoted Jesus here. He's referred to Jesus' teaching, but it begins with Jesus. The one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. The one whom Isaiah prophesied of in Isaiah 53, saying there was no deceit in his mouth. The one who never spoke an errant word, but was, an intention, but was intentional with everything he said. See, Jesus lived in truth. Jesus died in truth. Jesus was the truth, and therefore, he gives us the opportunity to walk in truth. We must begin here. We must begin with the gospel. 
Brothers and sisters, Jesus paid for every deceit of yours, every mishandled word that you've ever spoken, and now He invites you to rest, to repent, to live through Him in union with Him in order to be truth. Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them. For your sake, excuse me, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Begins with the gospel. So as we close, let me give a couple practical things for us to think about as we see the truth in Jesus. First of all, Jesus never needed to make a vow. He said what he meant, and he meant what he said all the time. Even when his followers were slow to understand and, and to, slow to respond. And what that means for us in terms of vows is that swearing in our everyday interactions with one another are completely unnecessary. Remember that show, um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, that game show that was real popular several years back? You remember the phrase that was made famous by that show, Regis Philbin? Is that your final answer? And you actually had to say that. Like you could go through every letter of the alphabet as an answer, but until you said final answer, that wasn't your answer. And we obviously don't do that in conversation, but we do say things like, let me be honest with you. Oh, well, great, great, thanks. I don't know, what, what were you doing before? What are you going to do after? Or we ask the question, are you serious? Are, are you joking? Are you kidding? Now, obviously, those are lighthearted examples, but they make the point that qualifying our words are completely unnecessary if we're called to be people of truth. Can we be trusted to say what we mean and to mean what we say? To do what we're going to do unless providentially hindered. It's one of the reasons why I when I say I'm going to pray for you, if I tell you I'm going to pray for you, you can count on the fact that when I walk away from you, I'm praying for you. Because though I want to make it back to my journal to be able to write, pray for so-and-so, I don't trust myself to get all the way back there. And so I pray for you the moment after I've said I'm going to pray for you because I want to do what I say I'm going to do. Now, that doesn't mean I do it perfectly, but I want to be a person of truth. Jesus never needed to vow. Jesus never needed to qualify his words. We never need to qualify our words. We never need to say, let me be honest with you. We just need to be honest with each other. And so what about vows? Are vows ever helpful? After all, Jesus did agree 
to Caiaphas's swearing. Vows are helpful, I would say, in this. Vows are helpful in the world to give the world assurance. The world doesn't know us. The world doesn't trust us. They don't know Jesus. So when I'm called to jury duty and I'm put on a case and I am uh, uh, called upon to swear before this judge that I will view this case impartially as I can, so help me God. I have no problem doing that because I want to assure him that I am a person of my word. And I don't think I'm violating Scripture. I don't think you're violating Scripture by putting a hand on a Bible and assuring the world that you are a person of truth. And then vows, I think, are helpful in more formal settings for us as believers. Sure, we don't need in everyday conversation to qualify our words, just let our yeses be yeses and noes be no. But we need to be reminded of, we need to declare publicly, for instance, our commitment to one another as members of our church, our commitment to Christ as we make profession of faith, our commitment to our children as we present them for baptism, our commitment to the office that God may have called us to. Those questions, those vows, those commitments that we make are, are good commitments for us. Not because we're suddenly now being honest, but because we're declaring that we are people of truth. Help me be a person of truth. So Jesus never needed to vow. And then finally, we'll close with this. Jesus always spoke the truth in love. Jesus always spoke the truth in love. There's never a need to exaggerate. There was never a need to embellish or unnecessarily withhold his feelings. There was never a need to play emotionally manipulative games with people in order to guilt them into doing things that Jesus wanted them to do. Jesus moved about this earth in genuine, honest relationships with others. And my question to us is, what if we strive to do the same? What effect would it have on our marriages? What effect would it have on our church body? I love those of you in here who have surprised me from time to time when I've asked you how you're doing. And instead of just saying, I'm doing great, I'm doing fine, doing good, you've actually said, I'm not doing well. And that always startles me because I'm used to hearing the, the pat answer, but it always refreshes me. When I ask you how you're doing, I want to know. You don't need to qualify your words. You don't need to mask your feelings. You can tell me. Imagine if we were a community, I've talked about this before, I've prayed for this for us, we continue as a session to pray for this. If we were a community safe enough to speak plainly about who we are and about how we're doing, about all of our mess, all of our brokenness, all of our need. This is the call of the gospel. 
This is the call to, to Christian community. Paul wrote it in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be people of truth. May God's Spirit move us to that end. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this one simple, powerful verse written in a context completely unique to ours against a problem that we didn't or don't face as a people, and yet it still has relevance for us. Forgive us for qualifying our words. May we increasingly so be building a reputation both in this gathering, in this community, in this family of faith, as well as outside of this community, in the world. May we be increasingly building a reputation of being those who simply speak the truth. Who say what we mean and mean what we say. Father, we thank You for our Savior who has gone before. We thank You for His Spirit which He has left for us. May we live in Him May we strive by the Spirit to walk in these things, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.